This is Going Direct, presented by Cal Fire Local 2881, a podcast created for the Cal Fire family. Welcome back to another episode of Going Direct. I am Didi Garcia, your Cal Fire Local 2881 Communications Officer. We've got some great topics here for you today with President Tim Edwards and our special guest from the California Association of Highway Patrolmen, President Rick Lebeski, and their Chief Executive Officer and Chief Negotiator, Carrie Lane. Today they're going to be talking about things like negotiations, pay parity, and similarities and differences between us. So let's get into it. Good morning. Good morning, Rick. And Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Tim. I uh, appreciate you guys taking the time to come speak with us and speak to my membership today. Um, because a lot of my membership always likes to, you know, we interact well in the field together across the state, our officers, or your officers and my firefighters. And of course, they talk and there's always, you know, CHP has this, why don't we have that? So I really appreciate the two of you taking the time to come and speak to our membership on how things work in your union and in part of your negotiations. And I'll start with you, Rick. Rick, you just want to give a little quick background on how long you've been a CHP officer and how long you've been the president of the union and any other union history you may have. Sure. Uh, So I became a CHP officer in 1995 when I graduated from the academy. Uh, I've spent the uh, majority of my career, actually all of my career in the central Los Angeles area, I have been a member of our association since 1995. I became a local area rep uh, back in 1998, 99, somewhere in that area. And I maintained the uh, position of area rep all the way until I got on the CHP board of directors in 2012, uh, where I was a director up until becoming the president of the association in 2018. Okay. And Carrie, as the lead negotiator, um, what, what is your official title, first and foremost? So my official title is Chief Executive Officer for the CAHP, but I also serve as the Chief Negotiator. That's part of probably one of the biggest pieces of my job responsibilities, in addition to kind of running the business operations of the organization. So I've worked for the association. Um, this year actually is going to be 30 years. So wow. it was my second job out of college, which is just funny. I I got hired as a receptionist, a temp receptionist (laughs) was my start with the association and my mentor and predecessor, excuse me, John Hamm really um, was just an incredible mentor and kind of went out of his way to mentor me and, and talk to me a lot about the work he was doing to help educate me and make me a viable candidate for the role someday when he retired and ultimately the board, you know, the board selects this position um, and so um, the board selected me to succeed John. So I've been the, the CEO since May of 2017, but I've worked for the association since November of 1991 and kind of came up through the ranks doing all kinds of different jobs within the organization before I took on this role. So Yeah, and, and so John Hamm was the CEO, is that yes. the title? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also the negotiator of CHP for many years also. How oh. long do you think he was there? So John was with us for over 30 years, actually. Yeah. Um, so he got hired. His first job actually was with Porak oh, um, okay. and uh, worked for them for a few years and then got picked up by the CHP and and um, served as a in an interesting situation like a co-CEO. We had two CEOs at the time. Um and then at some point he became the CEO and and uh, was the chief negotiator for probably 28 years for the association. 
So, yeah. And I, and, you know, to that point, Tim, I would just argue that that's a, that is some piece of our, um, effectiveness is, you know, you've just got folks in this role who, who, you know, you, you obviously Rick and I have a very, very good relationship. We work together really, really well. And we're, we're very much a team in terms of the organization. Um, but, but I have a good long view of the history. You know, yeah. I know the whole history of, and I know this is going to come up at some point, our parody statute and those yeah. kinds of things. So there's, for us, I think there's a value to having both an elected and a staff member kind of involved in this process. Yeah, absolutely. And we, when, before we get going, just for the record, because this is really one of the biggest topics of conversation among our membership is, and neither you nor John are attorneys correct that is 100 percent correct yeah 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 actually my degree is in sociology and psychology which i joke actually came in really handy over the years because really where i cut my teeth in my role was as a labor rep you know and that's people calling in distress something's not going well in their workplace and being a professional listener was super helpful (laughs) so so yeah not an attorney yeah yeah okay because that comes up a lot and um you know, as we discussed before, we actually take an attorney, Gary Messing, who you know, and yeah. his predecessor, Ron Huge Yank. respect for, for Gary and for Ron. Yeah, and, and long-term labor attorneys, many years of practice, yeah. um, and then probably been with our organization as long as John's probably been with CHP. Yeah. You know, so yeah. we have that same history. Yeah. yeah. Um, another good comparison um, that we have, which a lot of people don't understand, is we have the same legislative group, Aaron Reed and Associates. So our lobbyists are the same lobbyists as California Highway Patrol. Yeah, correct. So we have a lot in common in a lot of different ways, you know. Um, so when people think we're getting something more different, we have the same people fighting for for our members. So just a good little note to take to our guys that we have a lot in common and we do a lot of different things, but we're all a lot different. So Rick, real quick, how many CHP off active CHP officers? Um, in your totality in the CHP, and then how many active members, I should say. So so active, um, uniformed officers from our commissioner all the way down, we have approximately 7,000 right now. Active officers, um, I'm going to say we're probably roughly around 5,500, Carrie, yeah, I'm going to say. right, yeah. So yeah. total membership, we're at about 14,000 because we include our 7,000 uh, uniformed officers. Again, that's from the commissioner all the way down. And we have approximately 7,000 retirees, all our members. So a total membership of 14,000. Yeah. Well, so we're pretty close in active membership and ours can go all the way. And I want to, I want to reiterate this because a lot of individuals are like, why do we allow the director to be a member? But you allow your commissioner to be a member if they want to, right? Yes, absolutely. So that's just how it is. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I'll just make a comment about that if I could, Tim, is, yeah. you know, again, John and John Ham and I talked about this a lot and, and, um, you know, obviously the primary work that we do is on behalf of our rank and file members, but we really see that there's a tremendous value in having our, mem- our, our managers, our supervisors and managers as a part of our organization. I mean, some of the work we do is on their behalf, um, and, and, and we don't, you know, it's, again, it's not the focus of our efforts, but we really have a philosophy of, of what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? Yeah. So if you're taking care of your supervisory and management ranks as well, 
that reflects favorably on you as an organization. And it's not really that calculated, but it, it does kind of work out that way, I would say. We have a great relationship with CHP's management group, you know, their top management group. So, and, and that helps us more often than it hurts us, I would say. Yeah. Do you agree, I, Rick? I agree with Carrie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, um, our guys just don't see that same value that you just, you said. Um, we do have a lot of, you know, managers and management that may not see the rank and file eye to eye. Um, but the ones that actually want to participate and voluntarily pay because they voluntarily pay into the union, um, they do. And, and we actually have a supervisor rep on our board that will actually, when the rank and file is done with their negotiations, will then take over to yep. see what they can do for the supervisors. Yep. Same thing. You know, and so we do spend a lot of time actively um representing the supervisors and negotiations and things like that. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's good that they hear that you guys see the same point of view. And I get what your members are saying. I mean, we have certainly jokes within our organization about, you know, because we have a supervisor up on our board as well. And all of our rank and file folks take great, <laughs> <laughs> enjoy jabbing him every once in a while too. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a sword with two edges, right? Cause yeah. when management pisses you off, then why are they members of this organization? But, but again, I think there's, I am a firm believer in the thought that there is a tremendous value in being a part of taking care of the management team, even the ones who might not deserve it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, plus you want the, the, the good, people to promote, right? So you want to give them a reason to promote and, and make sure they have the same pay and benefits, yep. you know, as they promote. Because yep. if you don't do that, then you don't get the, the quality people that promote that are going to be supervising yeah, the rank and file. Yeah. So that's, that's a, a big thing too. And that's what we really look at is we want the right people to promote for the right reasons because in the end of the day, the organization is stronger that way. Right. So 100%. Um, when you guys, uh, I'll ask you a question. Um, what is what, when we when you guys go to negotiations? What's the makeup of your negotiating team at the table? So the makeup of our negotiations team is um, obviously our chief negotiator, uh, chief negotiator Carrie Lane, and then historically it's been the president, which is myself right now, and our executive board and vice president and secretary treasurer. So that those positions can alternate, but um, our currently and as of. Today, our negotiations team is Carrie Lane, myself, and our vice president, Scott Johnson. And we actually have another staff member who serves on our team as well, um, our labor representative. So we have a, you know, we have a civilian staff member who serves as the labor rep for our organization, mm. and she's a part of our team as well. And her name is Sherry Phoenix, and so the labor rep is, you know, primarily the note taker. But honestly, Sherry's been very valuable over the yeah, years because she history. probably knows the nuts and bolts of our collective bargaining agreement better than any of us, yeah. you know, because she's, she's always reaching out to reps and providing yeah. them information about the agreement. And she's, she's pointed out some pretty key stuff for yeah, us she over has, the years. I apologize. I forgot <laughs> to mention her, but um, yeah. yeah, she's a huge part of our negotiations team as well. All right. So we have what we call the state rank and file director, who is an elected position, full-time release, as is the president. Um, and they are our state-level uh, labor reps. So I think that would be comparable to Carrie, was her name? Sherry. Sherry, yeah. sorry. Sherry, no. Sherry. Um, but that's a civilian, where ours mm -hmm. is an elected position out of the field. So everybody, those other positions that you just named are all field personnel? 
they are elected board members on our board. Okay. And, and that the, the negotiations team, aside from Carrie and Sherry, is appointed by myself annually. Yeah. So at the end of this year, um, it, it won't change. It'll be Carrie Lane, uh, Sherry Phoenix, if I remain the president, myself, and then who I elect to be on the negotiations team. Okay. So that's that's pretty interesting. As the president, I don't sit on the negotiating team. Okay. Our state rank and file director is the chair of our negotiating team. And then we have a total, counting him, five members um, that are e- – Three are elected by the field from, you know, South Central North. Um, and then there's a note taker that we have also. That's an appointee. And then we have a member at large, which is also an appointee. That rotates every collective bargaining <laughs> contract. That, well, what happens with our team is at the end of, if we actually take a contract to ratification, if we don't, if we just like extend it or call it an extension or something, we don't take it to ratification. Um, the team remains the same. Once we ratify a contract, then the team members come up for election at the next convention. convention. And those are voted on by your greater general membership. Correct. Interesting. Yeah. And, and we pick them from, like I said, there's one from each south, central, north. So we are spread out throughout the state. Um, their classification it can be all the way from a firefighter one to a, a battalion chief. For us, if that's who the membership for that area chooses to elect. Interesting. Um, and so they are what probably we call them the same thing, but we call them our, our specialty experts. Like when you're explaining to Gary Messing the nuances of why we need something, right? Um, a lot of our guys say, well, well, you just have a bunch of knuckle draggers at the table. Well, they're the ones that know the job, right? Sure. So that's I'm assuming, you know, what that means, but that I guess that's why you guys like to have field personnel at the table too, right? Sure. And and typically, like I said, I'm, I'm a road officer. Uh, Scott Johnson, our vice president, yeah. is a road officer. Our entire board, other than our two retiree director and our supervisor director, are all rank-and-file officers from the field yeah. elected to be in our positions. Yeah. So we know that we, we're more in touch of what the field needs, what the road guys need. Exactly. And then that helps explain to – you know, the, the nuances to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To, yeah, I rely on these guys all the time yeah. for, you know, kind of giving me the, the field perspective, I call it. How do you think the, the guys are going to think of this, the guys and the gals out there? You know, so they, they're really kind of my feedback as I'm going through the process of negotiating and, um, you know, coming up with ideas or whatever the case may be. Yeah. You said something interesting, though, Tim. I wonder if I could just ask yeah. you about it. The, the way your team is made up, what is there some role within there that kind of gives continuity to your negotiations over the years? So again, I've been a part of the negotiating team for 28 years. I've only been the chief negotiator since 2017, but I have a lot of historical information because of that, which I personally find very, very helpful in my role. Do you have something similar to that on your team or? That that would be Gary Messing and, and Ron Yank. Got it. As our lead negotiators, they are the historians and, and the keepers of what has been negotiated and w- what has worked and what has not worked. Right. And, right. and, you know, uh, and they keep up on, just like you probably do, they re- they review everybody's bargaining agreements, not just within the state of California, but looking what's happening across the country and all that to kind of understand the, the realistic part of negotiations on how and what you can achieve or not achieve based gotcha. on what's going on. So they are our historians. Um, we, 
we actually, it's funny you say that because when we um, are at convention and the bargaining team is up for vote, uh, we try to stress that it's always good to keep, if, if, they're, if they didn't do bad and you know how judging who's bad and who's not is always based on the flavor of, of the last negotiation, right, unfortunately. Um, but to keep that continuity, you try to keep the team together. So the other position, the, the member at large, is one of the positions we have to make up the five. The president gets to appoint that position. And that position usually is the most longstanding one because unless that individual decides to leave or for some reason a new president wants to change them out. But that really hasn't been um, the case. Like I, I got to appoint someone a member at large only because the one that's been there forever decided they were done. You know, they're retiring, they're done, they just want to be done so she it was mary stock she was our longest you probably yeah, remember, I remember mary. mary yeah she was probably our longest standing bargaining team member at that point in time but then as you know since you've been at the table is our, our last team before this current one uh was together a long time too yeah. so it yeah. helped yeah. yeah yeah that's great that's great but that we leave that up to the membership to vote but we try to stress that you need that continuity so um now, I'll ask you a question, so I know what I tell my members, but when you go to the table, who sits on the other side of the table from you? So we have the state's chief negotiator. In our case, that's Paul Starkey. Um, we have their internal uh, kind of finance guy, um, Anthony Crawford. Is, we get, we is, get Anthony. Is, he comes in and uh, he comes and goes. Anthony's in sometimes and not in sometimes. He's a great but guy. But he's part of yeah. Anthony's great. Yeah. Um, there's a representative from the governor's department of finance always, which is really a new thing, as you probably know, Tim. Yeah. Like that's only been within the last eight years or so I that know. they've brought a department of finance rep in. And that one's always a little, uh, I don't know, it's. You, you just don't know quite what their perspective is, right? Oh, we know what his perspective is. <laughs> well, <laughs> to say no. They're the purse strings for sure. Um, and then there's typically a note taker for the state. And then CHP's Office of Employee Relations. So their yeah. folks, you know, their commander um, and their lieutenant and the sergeant who work in that office are also part of that. So it's a it's a good-sized team on the other side yeah. to our five people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, and if you don't understand, they bring in a whole group, fills yes. our room, probably like nine to ten people easily, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the one difference that I just noticed that you have, because what I tell people is on the other side of the table is – no attorneys either but you actually have paul starkey i didn't realize that and he is actually an, Paul's attorney. an attorney but that just is by happenstance i mean before yeah. him was pam no before him was candace um candace hyatt who works for cal hr she was not an attorney pam yeah. manweller before was her that? was not an attorney so paul just happens to be an attorney who's yeah. also in that role over at cal hr so yeah see and on our side of the table we have the same makeup ours is a labor person from cal fire their labor relations officer, finance. Like you said, Anthony comes and goes. He's the number guys for CalHR, and I like Anthony a lot. Yeah. And we we actually have Lily Cervantes this year, but before that it was Pam Manweiler, and and none of them are attorneys that right. sit across the table. Right. And I, I think that's um, a, a good perception, and I'm glad you clarified that this is the only time that you actually just by 
just because he by is chance. an attorney by chance, yeah. Paul yeah. Starkey that you have, he was the one assigned to you or took you on. I guess you're bargaining in it. Um, because there is no 90% of the time, there is no attorney on the other side of the table. Right. And, and I like to tell my group is that we're one, I, I believe we're one out of two that actually take an attorney to the actual negotiating table. And, and I, I keep trying to find the other one outside of the attorneys who are all attorneys when they go to the table, right? <laughs> so unless you know different, because I, do you know of any other bargaining unit in your head that does? Because those are the only two that I know of and I, and I say, but I want to be you accurate. No, I'm not 100% sure. I would just, I say, um, I'd be confident saying the vast majority of them do not yeah. have an attorney involved in their negotiations. I mean, there's a lot of groups out there where it is the president and a couple of other people, you know, thrown into the deep end of the pool. And as you know, Tim, negotiations is a very nuanced process, I would say. And it's really about the relationships. I mean, yeah. I always think of negotiations as we're, we're coming together to solve problems. And I don't always agree with what the state has to say about the way they want to solve a problem. And they yeah. don't always agree with the way I want to solve the problem, but we're really there to solve problems. Yep. And, um, and so much relies on having a relationship of respect. You know, you, you can't go in there and beat people to hell and then expect them to, you know, come around and, and go, oh, you're the good guys. We're going to take care of you. And I'm not saying that you don't fight the fight. That's not my point. You, you, you have to be very vigorous about upholding what's important to you and your members. Um, but you also got to, you got to work with the folks on the other side too. So um, you can't just pummel them <laughs> and expect uh, you know, them it, to <laughs> take care of you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, I'm, I'm it's glad. a fine line. It is. And I'm glad, I'm glad you, you, you mentioned that because a lot of our guys and, and you know, and, and sometimes I, I a hundred percent agree with them. It's so frustrating sometimes that you want to go out and just right away attack. Yeah. And, and that stalls things out in my mind a lot longer. And like, Take the governor. A governor's in office four years minimum. If you have to have a contract somewhere in there, if you go after him, you know, too much, he's ultimately the one that's going to decide, right? So you can't beat him up too much when you're trying to get something from him. So I'm glad you yeah. say that, even yeah. though, like you said, we're going to fight the fight. We're going to make our case. We're going to do everything we can. But at the end of the day, ultimately, they got to be able to see your point. They yes. want him to do an agreement. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And it makes it very difficult because, like I said, there are some days, like I'm sure you, Ricky, just want to say, you know what? Yeah, this, you know, <laughs> where to go, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, Rick fields more of the phone calls and the emails than I do from, you know, members who are just, yeah. you know, they they want to just. <laughs> there, There's a small group of people, you know, who do want you to just beat the hell out of the other side. And it's just, it's ultimately counterproductive to do that. You know, you can do it to a point and you can, you can do that kind of to show your members that you're fighting the fight, but it, you, you got to be a little bit careful about how far you take that in my humble opinion. Yeah. And no, I agree. Hey, can you kind of expand on that, Rick, the type of calls that you get from your membership? Yeah. Um, you know, Carrie and I have a, a, a 
long joke about you know you can't please 100 percent of the people it's impossible in yeah. fact we have one guy uh, i'll just share you know a quick story one guy says hey i really like what you guys do i support the contract but i'm going to vote no just so it's not unanimous uh, <laughs> never could understand that frame of mind but it is what it is but yeah. i'm going to say for the most part and i'll just throw a 90 percent. i'll even go as high as 95 percent of our members are very happy with the work that we do and unfortunately the majority of the time you hear from the 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 vocal minority who just aren't going to be happy no matter what you do. And the phone calls that we field like that, um, you know, you, you try to do your best to explain to them that we are fighting the fight for you. We can't get it all. We can't get everything, especially in today's day and age. It's difficult for law enforcement. Um, they want to take, take, take from us. So it's hard to negotiate for more, more, more. And I think those, the, the vocal minority don't understand what goes on at the table and and they're just no matter what you do they're going to complain and you just got to deal with it you got to learn how to deal with it and you got to learn how to uh, put it in your bag I've always said I could have 99 uh, members happy if one out of 100 is not I lay awake and think about it and that's just the way I am as the president and I let that bother me Um, but again at the end of the day you just got to realize you can't please everybody yeah, there's a it it's it's tough and and I'm sure you've experienced this Tim cuz very few people call you and say, "Hey, we think you are just doing a bang up job up there. Thank you so much for what you do." And I'm not going to say that never happens cuz honestly, we do get a lot of people who go out of their way to yeah. to let us know they appreciate what we do, but just like any organization, you mostly hear from the people who are unhappy and it's really easy sometimes to let that like color your view of the world and I think it's you know, in the roles that we're in and we talk each other off the ledge quite a bit, I think, you yeah. know, cause often we both get the same email. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and, and I've been there before. I mean, again, I've been on 26 years and I remember being a brand new officer. I didn't know what the board of directors was, didn't know what the association did. Um, had no idea what the board was doing, but, uh, whatever they did, I trusted. We have a very, very, I'm going to say low, uh, voter turnout, on average, we're what fifty percent. I think we've had our highest this year, which was uh, close to sixty percent. And you know, you could look at that as a good thing. You can look at it as a bad thing. You could look at it as forty percent who didn't vote are just happy, go lucky, highway patrolmen who trust in what we do and don't need to vote or don't care to vote. Uh, you can look at it any way you want yeah. to. You know, um, but we have a very low voter turnout on our contracts. And again, you can look at it positively or negatively. Yeah, um, we we. Um we have a low turnout too, but we, we actively go out in each of our units and, and, and go to the different stations or different areas to actually get them to vote, try to get the most vote. Right. Um, so, but at the end of the day, the ones that don't want to vote, we just, we think the same thing, whether they're just agreeable to what we're doing and they don't want to vote. Yeah. They just want to move yeah. forward. Someone, someone else is going to take yeah. care of that. That's um, kind of, yeah. We, we try to do the same thing. And at the beginning of this, uh, yeah, we mentioned the uh, <laughs> podcast that we do, or I'm yeah. sorry, the uh, Zoom presentations that we do. And we do those for our approximately 130 area reps that we have throughout the state. And the purpose of doing those Zoom meetings are for the area reps to go to their individual area offices and explain the contract, explain what we negotiated in hopes that we get a high voter turnout. But again, you still average 50 to 60% max. Yeah. We're, we're the same way. It sounds like we do similar, the same things, you know, try to get people to educate them as much because you can't broadcast every nuance of a contract out. You have to really go in person to explain it. Right. And how do you guys vote? Do you guys vote via uh, email or do you vote still, uh, 
U.S. mail? How do you guys vote? We, no, we vote in, in person voting. Like I said, they, we have we go out and actually have them do a secret ballot where we confirm they're a member of the union. Um, it's mailed to them, or no, you actually no. have voting polls. We have voting boxes that we send with individuals to go get the okay. actual. So we go out and do it hands on. Interesting. And, and so they get to vote. It's secret. We don't know what they're going to vote. We just confirm they're a member. We give them the ballot. They vote. They put it in a box. Those boxes are not opened. They're actually put before the, I should say before the ballot goes in the box, it's put into an envelope and sealed. Interesting. Okay. Um, and this year we did it last year. We did it even different. Like it went into an envelope, no name, no nothing sealed. And then the envelope was signed. So we can make sure we didn't have duplicate ballots when they came up here. And then it was open, you know, Person's confirmed, member, no duplicate. That envelope was taken out and thrown into a pile. Yeah, We don't even know what it is. It's just thrown into a pile. And then the pile is open and then counted. And, gotcha. and we have, I mean, ours is kind of like a long process because we do it that way. And so each area is counted a total of three times. So there's no question on what it was. You know, this is what it was. So you kind of, we know the areas that voted heavily no, it, just because we know that those those boxes of the Central South and stuff sure. like that. Um, but we don't know who voted, no, and stuff like that. So it's totally secret ballot, but we do do hands-on, no mail-in, no nothing, not electronically. We want to confirm they're a member in good standing, and there's no duplicates when we do it. So it's a process. It usually takes us from the time we TA an agreement and send it out to ratification, probably close to – anywhere from 90 to 120 days. Oh, oh wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and that scares the administration because anything can happen. And so they're in limbo now too, right? Yeah. So it's like, but that's our process, you know, um, when we do it. But we have a handful, I think like you, we have a handful of what I like to call the haters. And I, I like <laughs> to say it, I call it what it is, um, who are very active on social media these days, unfortunately, because that's the, that's the way people get their information. Okay. Um, but it's really a handful of guys, but I'm, I'm like you, Rick, those handful of guys do keep bothers me, you know, cause we want to make everybody happy. We want to do what's right. But in order to fall asleep, you guys, I always say we have, you know, 6,200 full-time members. If I can make 3,200 of them happy, then I'm doing good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's it is. It's a you know, it's a business. It's a very much a we call it a what have you done for me lately business, right? You know, you're only as good as kind of what you said. You're as good as your last contract, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then you gotta gotta prove yourself all over again every time you go to the table. Yeah, it's what I 100 agree. What have you done for me lately? Because <laughs> unfortunately, a lot of our members that are are the ones that I call haters are actually. I, I think I told you we have a lot of paramedics that are coming and going. They come on to the job and then they, they move because everybody's hiring paramedics. But they're the ones that are, like seem to be the most vocal. And I understand they're overworked and stuff like that. The, but the ironic part about it is that one classification has probably benefited the most. And we've actually had settlement agreements that put $45,000 into some of their pockets, more so than any other rank and file member. But they're not happy. What's the union done for me? And it's like that $45,000 settlement check you just got yeah. and, and the boost in your overtime, what's the union done for you? Well, yeah. I guess, like you said, it's what, what did you do for me yesterday? You know? you know, I have actually my own, this is probably my psychology and sociology yeah. degree speaking, but I sort of have my own uh, 
kind of half-baked theory on some of those individuals. And I'm, I'm, you know, again, both of our groups are public safety groups. And anytime you're working in public safety, you're going to have some degree of post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. injury out there. And I, I've never done it, but it, there's been times when I've gotten one of those emails where it's just like, wow, you, I don't know how you could turn this around into something to be so angry about, but I almost want to call their commander and say, can you check in on him? <laughs> like I, I, honest to God, I, I think some of those folks just, they've, there's some major PTSI happening on the ba- on background and kind of, they're just mad at the world and yeah. you just happen to be you know, the target that day. So that I, maybe that's a coping mechanism for me so that I don't think someone really hates us that much. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I do think there's maybe some truth to that too. And it would make sense in your paramedic classification. They're probably seeing, you know, the most, I, I'm going to guess yeah. folks who see some of the most traumatic stuff out there in the field. Yeah. A lot of it is, you know, um, another thing, and, and we'll get kind of focused here in a minute on what I really want to cover. But another thing that we, we have is, we're so shorthanded in, in, in the state of California for firefighters as a whole and in Cal Fire, really. But, you know, we contract, you know, I don't know if CHP does or not, but we contract, cities contract and county contracts to Cal Fire for their fire protection. And I'll take Riverside County. It's our biggest uh, county contract. It's got, you know, 900 plus members down there. Um, but truly the staffing there is based on what the county is willing to pay because the state of California is not going to pay for Riverside County's contract. Right. But because of the lack of staffing as a whole, they're drawing into the Schedule B side of things, that the, the wildland mission also. And because our wildland side is so understaffed that they're being drawn in to cover behind those type of missions, they're, they're really being overworked, Right. And so what we always get in comparison to CHP is, well, those guys don't get stuck on for 100 days straight, you know, or work three months straight with no days off. They work 10 hours, they go home, we work a 72-hour shift and may or may not see home. And that's where I think the, it, that is the, probably the biggest difference between our organizations is the work shift as a whole. And so, they're, they, you know, yeah, PTSI, absolutely, but just worn out, absolutely. Yeah. They're yeah. just beat. I mean, yeah. you can't work someone 60 days straight. And, and last year we had guys work almost five months. And I'm not exaggerating with probably four or five days off in five months. So yeah, they're frustrated. Yeah. Absolutely. You yeah. Know? And, yeah. And I don't agree with that, but they, they don't understand they get the staffing that we need. We have to convince the County down there that they need the staffing and we got to convince the state they need the staffing. But as you go very well, finance doesn't like to say yes to any of that. So, um, so what do, do your officers get what we call forced on a lot or do they? We do. We have um, mandatory overtime. I mean, yeah. if uh, you know, you can only run so short on the road to where they'll hold off, uh, hold over the previous shift. If uh, you, know, you have a graveyard, uh, graveyard shift getting off and you have an AWOT shift starting. And if, if it's too far undermanned, they'll force overtime on guys. Absolutely. They will. Yeah. If they can't fill certain details. They'll, um, they'll mandate the overtime. Yeah. So, like I say, I think we have a lot in similarities yeah. and just the, different things. You talk about the fires. I mean, we, we go on tactical alert for the fires, um, and uh, our guys are, are doing similar. I mean, I don't think we have guys six months on or five months on, I think you said, but we have guys doing long stretches without a day off on 12-hour shifts. Yeah. So, and I know your guys might say, well, they still go home at the end of the night. True, they do, but it's a long time. It's long, consistent days of 12-hour shifts. Yep. So similar, 
Yeah. And, and different stresses for sure yeah. too. You know, where fortunately 90% of the time we show up, we're the good guys. And, <laughs> and when you guys show up, everybody automatically goes on to this defensive you know, yeah. <laughs> like mode. So yeah. that strains on the officers too. Yeah. Um, so one of the reasons why I invited you guys here is I want to kind of compare um, negotiations and contract talks and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I, I previously told you we, we negotiate, I think it's for 22, 22, 21 or 22. Don't, now I'm trying to remember. Classifications, different classifications. And when you go to the table, you're negotiating for how many classifications? One. One. <laughs> One classification. Uh, your helicopter pilots, your motor cops, all of them are one classification. They are all specialty groups in themselves, but fall under one classification of officer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I'll just comment on that, Tim. You know, um, to me, as someone who, you know, negotiate, Rick and I negotiate together on behalf of those folks, it is infinitely easier to negotiate for a single classification multiple classifications just adds another whole level of complication to negotiations and you really have to like have your brain in 22 different places while you're negotiating right the implications of this for this group and that group and it it definitely adds a huge level of challenge um and i i go back to so we just celebrated our 100 year anniversary as an organization Mm, last year 100 years of of the California Association of Highway Patrolmen. Our, our organization actually predates the Highway Patrol itself, which is a whole nother, <laughs> whole nother podcast. But yeah. um, so as a part of that, we were going back and interviewing some of the leaders of the association from the past. And one of the people we interviewed was a gentleman who held my position many, many years ago uh, by the name of Ralph Tornator. And he talked about the efforts of the CAHP, who was just kind of an association of members at the time, to become the exclusive representative for CHP officers and to have our own exclusive bargaining unit. So, you know, back then we could have been put together with corrections and fire and, and, you know, I don't know, maybe the dispatchers and that whole group, we could have all become one union representing multiple classifications. And Ralph Tornator really had the foresight to say, our job's going to be easier if we keep it pure. So let's, let's just, petition for us to be the exclusive negotiators for highway patrol officers. And, and he understood sitting in that seat back then how, how that was going to simplify our lives. And I'm so grateful to him to this day because it does in fact make my job a lot easier. It makes Rick's job a lot easier. And, and I'm sorry that your job is a lot more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is what it is. You know, we, we would like to just be called all firefighters in one classification as a fire department, but you know, we're part of the division of forestry and department of forestry. And so we have a lot of those classifications mixed in among us um, and different work weeks too. You know, yeah. we have our 72 hours, we have our 40 hours. And so makes it, you know, those just this little nuances of all those little things. It's a lot to track. Yeah. It's a lot to track. So, um, you mentioned your pay parity earlier, and I want to I want to talk about that because that's one of the things that you know uh, we've been st- we we have been striving for a long time. We've actually had the pay parity on Gray Davis's desk when he was on the way out the door. He vetoed. We had it on Arnold's desk on the way out the door. He vetoed. Brown just quite frankly said, "Don't even try." 
you know <laughs> so um so our guys you know they always go like hey chp pay parity pay parity so can you give a little bit of history how pay parity came about for you and if if it is or not difficult to keep in the fight to keep pay parity yeah sure so i'm rick and please i'm going to kind of lay out the history but please jump in wherever you see fit um so you know, it's easy, I'm sure, for your members to just look at us and say, hey, they've got parity, why don't you? So first of all, we'll apologize as an organization <laughs> for ruining it for you because I think the fact that we have it and we're the only group that has it kind of focuses administrations on the fact that that's not what they want for other groups. And mm. so I, I would just say our good fortune to be in the position we're in is a disadvantage for you and your members automatically because it, um, Governor Brown hated our pay parity statute, absolutely hated it. And we lived in fear at all times that that somewhere in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning, a law was going to get passed to, to undo it, you know, so yeah. there's that. But, but to kind of lay out the history, uh, this has been a 50-year endeavor, more than 50 years. Let me think about that. Yeah, about 50 years. You know, our pay parity statute started 50 years ago. And at the time, it was very much, uh, it was very similar to kind of what you guys do, which is we just did our own survey, you know, and we were constantly trying to demonstrate to the administration how our members were doing relative to some of their counterparts in the local agencies. Um, and eventually, there was a law passed, and it was a, you know, the state uh, will consider the compensation of these other groups when setting pay rate for CHP officers. And you can imagine how, you know, language that says they'll consider it meant they considered it and then said, yeah, but we're not going to do that. Right. Yeah. So, so we, we, our group lagged at one point we had a lag of 22% relative to the local groups. And, um, it was governor Brown's first time around and, uh, we actually, um, were successful ultimately in securing a raise of 22% that was done over the course of five years, I think. But this is back in the 70s, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but Governor Brown 1.0 was, was <laughs> in the governor's office at that time, and actually it was a veto override that gave CHP officers that pay increase. He, he vetoed the bill, and the legislature did a veto override and gave it to our folks anyway. Wow, and how... In, in your opinion, before you get off of that, because we've gone down that route about legislators in veto override. How realistic is that? So that was like a miracle, huh? This is this is the 1970s, Tim. It was such a different world than it is today. That I haven't seen a veto override of anything in probably my entire career, if I think about it, uh, my 30 years. I mean, those are nearly impossible politics has just changed a lot in yeah. the last 50 years, you know, so it is a very different world right now. And, um, you know, the governor wields a significant amount of power and you've got a democratic governor with a democratic legislature. They're, they're not going to buck their governor. So it, it's, it's, it's not realistic in today's world. Um, thank uh, you for clarifying. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I would just say that a lot of what we have today is sort of there's a lot of luck involved in there. I mean, it was a lot of hard work by a lot of people who were committed to pursuing parity, um, including my predecessor. But, um, 
but a lot of it was just simply good fortune, right place, right time, right relationship with a legislator um, who happened to be someone who held a power. And I'd say the other thing that has changed California politics significantly is um, uh, term limits. You know, it's a really different world now for electeds. Back then you had Willie Brown, you mm-hmm. know, who was willing to carry our pay parity statute and nobody messed with him because he was going to get reelected by his constituency over and over and over again. So he wielded a lot of power and he could kind of come and and say, yeah, I'll, t- I'll do this for you, CHP. And so he carried one of our important parity bills. So the other thing about it is it's been a work in progress. You know, what started as a state will consider it turned into it'll be the policy of the state to consider. And then it is the policy of the state to compensate CHP officers relative to these five agencies to the state shall compensate. So, you know, that that shall in our statute is really what gave it teeth, and that did not happen until the early 2000s. And so before that, we were really in the same boat as you, which is, you know, our members knew this pay parity statute was out there, and it was roundly ignored by elected officials all the time, and then it would tick people off, like, why can't you make that happen? And But our timing was good, I would just say. And, and I, I, there's no universe in which we could do today what we did in the early 2000s. It just wouldn't happen in today's political landscape. Well, to even, to, I, didn't, I, I never knew the history that there was a veto override to get it. And that, that speaks volumes right there because even Brown point one one oh or whatever you want to call 1.0, it. 1.0, yeah. 1.0. Um, like I said, when we went to him this last time, he was in office. He's like, "Don't don't think about it." You know, um, it's amazing that that I didn't realize that's what it took to get it. And yeah. I'm glad you explained that today. That veto override is pretty much impossible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it in and politics are just so different in this world that uh, again, I don't even know the last time a veto override even happened in the California legislature. Yeah, probably that one. <laughs> yeah, that might be. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe yeah. so. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a very different political world now and and you know, we had the good fortune to have have done some things back when you could, I guess is how I would describe it. Um but uh, but again, I'll reiterate, I think Rick and I both, you know, along with our legislative advocate Aaron Reed, I mean, the three of us live in fear of somebody coming along someday and saying, we're going to take you on. We're going to take you on. We don't like this as a, as a state, you know, as a, we don't like a policy where you just get an automatic pay raise. <clears throat> it, you know, cause obviously it's, there's some things that are simplified in our bargaining. Although I always say live by the sword, die by the sword. Yeah. You know, there's been years we got four tenths of a percent as our pay raise or 0% because our parity it showed no leg, you know, so it's, it's not always the ones people remember when you get a good pay raise and then, uh, you know, people kind of forget when it, when it sort of worked against us where we got nothing while other groups were getting something. So I, I think a couple of years ago I did a 10 year look back and it was an average of 3% a year. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, I mean, sometimes that came in the form of 0% this year and 4% the next year, but, um, but yeah, it's it's an important part of our organization. Um, but I I would not want to be trying to accomplish it today. Yeah, I will just say. Um, are you are you guys constantly every time you go to the table does that come up as a, a subject your pay parity 
and does it come up as a it, it's as a sore subject on their side or how I don't know. It how is discussed, I guess, yeah. is what I would say. Um I, I don't know if anyone's ever come right out and told us they hated it at the bargaining table. Not at the table, I don't <laughs> believe it in my experience, but um but kind of behind the scenes, you know, we knew that there was some frustration at very high levels of particularly Brown's administration, Brown 2.0, you know, they they just, they weren't happy about it, but they weren't, they, they, I think made the decision. They just weren't going to take on the public fight with the highway patrol, you know? So, or, you know, I mean, they have a lot of things to worry about, right? So, um, hard to know all the reasons why someone might not come after it, but it doesn't mean it couldn't be done. Yeah. Um, when you, when you, um, do you get automatic pay increases when you're even outside a contract if something were to happen, or does it have to occur while you're in negotiations? Well, what our statute says is that it'll be implemented through collective bargaining. So that, that the idea is that it happens in the context of collective bargaining. We've had exactly one time in our history when it, it did not happen within bargaining, but that was also the one time in our history when we weren't able to reach an agreement. Um, and that was in 2018. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a rough go at the table in 2018. Our, we had had a five-year contract that got extended another three years. So we had been in an agreement for eight years. Um, and, you know, we had an entire section of our membership who had never even been through the collective bargaining process, who had been hired in that time period. It was really interesting. There was a lot of dynamics in play that year, but we didn't reach an agreement that year. Um and we did still get a parity increase, and that was uh, that was an an interesting thing to experience, you know. Um, but the what our statute actually says is that it's to be implemented through an MOU bill. You know, we, we it's funny because as as we talk, it's like <laughs> deja deja vu almost. I don't know how they call it, but we had a long stretch of a contract too that I think lasted ten years. And, um, yeah, a lot of our members didn't go through that collective bargaining process either. And then we signed another long-term contract. And so it is new to the membership when you actually have to go and and fight because they don't understand that everything's a fight. And 90% of the stuff that comes from their side is a takeaway. (laughs) Nothing's a gift. Um, So when you go and you negotiate your contract – and I, I know we talked about this off offline, but your 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 funding for the California Highway Patrol comes out of where? The motor vehicle account, okay. um, which is a, which is funded exclusively by vehicle registration fees. So when you mail your DMV payment every year um, to you know register your vehicle, a portion of that I think it's twenty nine dollars. I think so. Twenty nine dollars of that comes into the MBA account. The rest of it goes to local government. So it's basically a tax, um, you know, for the local county um, that you live in. But but $29 of that is set aside specifically to fund the Highway Patrol, the Department of Motor Vehicles, and the Air Resources Board. So there's three state agencies funded out of that fee. Um, and, and so that's we get a little bit of our funding from the general fund, but it's mostly work that we're doing 
on behalf of the state that's not directly related to enforcement of the vehicle code and those kinds of things. So, for example, you know, we were, were um, what's the word I'm looking for? The state police and the highway patrol were merged mm-hmm. back in 1995. And so we took on all the dignitary protection for state constitutional officers um, protection of the right. Capitol, yeah, the judiciary, the judicial system. So, so we get reimbursement from the state general fund for that work because it's not directly related to you know going out and writing tickets and doing that kind of thing, taking crashes and all of that. So, but it's it kind of cuts two ways. And you and I talked about this a little bit, Tim, when we were talking about it offline. But sometimes it's nice to be special funded. Um, you know, we don't necessarily always experience the same ups and downs as the general fund departments. Um, but I think over the years, the administrations uh, have stopped making the distinction. If the general fund's in trouble, then the highway patrols and the highway patrol is in trouble too. Even if, you know, because we still got our registration fees even during COVID, and mm-hmm. you know, um, but they kind of are t- intent on treating everybody the same across the board. So we obviously, you know, went through the same thing of being forced back to the table last year and negotiating a pay reduction in exchange for PLP and all of those things, even though you could potentially argue we're not general fund. So wh- why would we be impacted by that? But um, in any event, so yeah, so we are a special funded agency. We're not fighting for general fund dollars. We're not competing necessarily for general fund dollars. Yeah, and and we're competing with the other 19 bargaining units for those general fund dollars. And I think that's, like you said, it's 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 a good and bad for you guys, right? Yeah. And, and you did say something that's very um, true. The state likes to treat every bargaining unit, no matter what, what you do, what your job is, how hard your job is, how many hours you work, the same. And, and we always argue you can't, but unfortunately their mentality is, yes, we will, you know? Yeah. And, but we go to the table and I think, you know, and you guys know Terry McHale said it best. And probably out of $1 of taxes, 25 cents of it goes for public employee salaries. And so now you have... 20 bargaining units fighting for 25 cents yeah. and we all want our big piece of the pie out of 25 cents. And when you look at it that way, you're, it, it, it's a mountain to get the other three cents, or, you know, the other five cents spread out among the group in the best pop, pop, possible way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's where our biggest problem is, is that we are competing for that same 25 cents, you know, and it makes it very hard. Um, for us to do. Yeah. And I, and to your point, even beyond the dollars, there's just this mentality on the other side. So, so, you know, you kind of putting yourself in the shoes of CalHR and those folks, right? If they do something for you that they aren't willing to do for other groups, you can bet those 20 other groups come screaming. Even if you guys have the argument, hey, we're public safety, we're out there doing a really important job right now, wildfires are getting worse, we've all seen it over the last few years, our members are the ones dealing with that. All those things are true. Um, But they hate having to answer for the fact that they did something special for you that they weren't willing to do for another union. Um, And administrations in particular don't like doing that, right? It's just, it's a hard thing to answer. Um, and so you end up kind of working against that, that 
you're all the same mentality. So I, I totally can appreciate what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, you know, we were, I think we were kind of fortunate when Brown came in his second go around and he took out the me too clauses from all the contracts. <laughs> so nobody can come back and say, Hey, they got that. But with that, like you said, there's some bad to it. It's okay. Well, we won't do anything more for anybody else. So they don't have to worry about it. Yeah. That mentality. Yeah. Um, when you, um, go to the table and, and you're negotiating, is it, do they come at you guys with a lot of takeaways too? Like, do they come after you with a lot of stuff they want to kind of like grab back from you that they gave? Let me think about that a little bit. I'd have to go. 2018 was rough. Um, and the, there was a lot of, there was a lot going on back in 2018 that, that made it a lot more challenging. So again, I'll just, 2018 were the first negotiations where I was, you know, I was serving as the chief negotiator. Um, first one I was doing solo as a chief negotiator, along with, you know, the team members. It wasn't Rick at the time, but um, I'm trying to remember if we faced outright takeaways. I certainly know that essentially their perspective was you have enough, so don't ask me for anything more. So here we are, we, you know, we've been in an agreement for eight years. We'd had an agreement that went back to 2010. So we had a lot of pent up hey, we're behind on uniform allowance, we're behind on, um, you know, annual leave caps, we're behind on this, we're behind on that. And, and we kind of went at them like, we want to, we want to make this right, we want to make that right, we want a higher leave balance cap, we want this, we want a bigger uniform allowance. And it was like throwing yourself against a brick wall. They, they wanted none of it. Um, and, you know, I mean, from my perspective, I was saying, look, we've been in an agreement for 10 years. We've got these flat dollar incentives, including our uniform allowance that haven't been updated in 10 years. Meanwhile, prices have gone up. It costs our members more to put a uniform together. That's a, just an ex anecdotal example, yeah. you know. They were like, nope, 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 nope. Um, I was very nervous that they were going to come after our parity statute because I knew in particular that the Brown administration didn't like it. Um, and in the end, they didn't take on that fight for whatever reason. Um, but, yeah, so I don't know that they came. I, I Can you think of anything, Rick, where they've said, not only can you not have an improvement, we're going to take this away? No, I think everything is discussed, but no, no particular takeaways that I can think of. But it's definitely a challenge to make inroads toward improvements. And I, and I will say... I think our parity statute works against us a little bit when it comes to bargaining other things because they know we all have an idea of what that pay raise is going to be. We're, we start our survey in January of each year. And so they'll look at that and go, well, you're getting a 4.5% pay raise, so that's enough. Yeah. You know, It kind of works against us a little bit in, in at times, I would say, in that regard. Yeah. You guys were, um, and I want to talk about, the, the PEPRA and OPED. Um, my my understanding and my belief is you're one of the first bargaining units actually negotiated um, paying in the post-retirement medical. How many years have you guys been doing that? So we started in 2009 was the first year. Was it 2000? It was either 2009 or 2010. I can't remember right off the top of my head. Um, but actually... I think it's the same amount of time you guys have been because my predecessor, is that right? No. Tim, how, when did you guys start paying into OPEP? In our, in our last contract. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm, 
Um, I'm trying to remember what it was that we teamed up on. Pepra. No, because that was 2012. Wasn't it when... Um, in any event, we'll, yeah. I, we'll just stick to... Yeah. yeah, so OPEB. So we've been contributing to OPEB since 2009, I think. Yeah. Um, I think... It, yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah, it, it, my predecessor is actually the one who, who kind of started that. And I think the idea was... Uh, to create a funding mechanism so that because health benefits for retirees has always been a pay-as-you-go system so the state budget this year funds the retiree health care for this year um, and you know we were kind of worried about a universe in which they just said you know what budget-wise we just can't afford to do it anymore um, we're going to take retired health benefits away and that was a really important benefit I mean I when I'm you know this, Rick, when we talk to our members about their pensions, we tell them your health benefits are as important, if not more important than the pension, that, than the actual pension, you know, and anyone who's cared for an aging parent knows that, yeah. you know, at some point your life is doctor's appointments and, and, uh, you know, working in the healthcare system and to do that without insurance would be crazy. But, but what John really strongly believed was that if state employees were, helping to fund their future retirement benefits, A, it would actually ensure that there was a pool of money there to pay for those benefits in the future. And B, it made it a lot harder for someone to come along and just say, we can't, we can't do it anymore. Sorry, we can't afford it. And, and interestingly, we did that in 2009. And in 2010 was when the city of Stockton took retiree health benefits away from all of their employees. Yep. So there was, you know, there was some foresight there on his part to recognize that that was going to be a challenge in the future. Yeah, we took, we actually, we, we, nego we you know, it, it, as you know, in, in um, 17, that was just the Browns' mission. He, that was his administration. They were going to come out. They were going to make everybody pay for post-retirement medical. And um, I actually touted that, you know, our guy, our, our membership likes to compare us to the Highway Patrol. And it's all like, well, okay, if you want to compare us to the Highway Patrol, they had the forethought, the forethought to go and start paying this because at a swipe of a pen, your post-retirement medical could be taken away, and now we're securing it. And, and we still take a lot of flack from the field that, you know, we pay 4.4 in the OPEB, but at the end of the day, we're securing something for you that you will hopefully use. And it's not, it, it, you may think it's a chunk out of my check and it's a bad thing, but it's really not. And I, I really... Well, that was like an advantage to me to tout to our members like, okay, well, you want to compare us to the highway patrol. They were doing it well before they were forced into doing it because they saw that. And as you said, which a lot of the younger guys weren't around in those days. Yeah. Stockton, they walked in and said, guess what? Boom, boom, done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and we may state employees may not have the best salaries, but we have, we have a fairly decent retirement system that we want to uphold and keep because we worked our whole careers in these fields to have that retirement. Yeah. And, and that was a big push from our members. So by you guys doing that, it helped me say, okay, you want to compare us to them? Well, they've been doing it way longer than yeah. we've been doing it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It, it really is about securing that benefit, not just yeah. from a legal argument perspective, but from an actual funding perspective too. If you've got that money set aside in trust, and it can only be used for health benefits, you don't have a governor in the future who swipes the pen and says, we're taking this away. Yeah. 
you know. So I just, when I talk to members about it, I describe it as similar to your retirement. You know, you're you're paying now for a benefit you're going to get in the future, and it's going to be an important benefit for you. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's yeah, it's it's amazing. I'm glad that you you said exactly what I've been trying to tell my membership. Yeah. You know, but when they hear it from me and they're angry with the union, they don't want to understand it. So it's good. Yeah, nobody there. wants to see a pay getting taken out of their check, right? Yeah. But do your members pay into Social Security? No. Yeah, neither do ours, and and. You know, that was the other thing is in, in Stockton, actually, um, one of my staff members, one of our staff members, um, had a friend who worked for the city of Stockton who was 64 years old when she lost her retiree medical care. Mm. She had never paid into Medicare. Wow. So she essentially not only did not have her retiree medical care through the city of Stockton anymore, she also was not Medicare eligible. So at 64 years old, she was faced with having to go out and buy a, an individual health insurance policy on the private market. And I, I mean, you're talking about probably, I don't know, 1500 to $2,000 a month that she had to pay for that. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's downright scary. I mean, now even non that's half a retirement check for yeah, some people, if exactly. not more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I'll tell you the timing. As sad as I was for the city of Stockton employees, the timing of that actually ended up benefiting us organizationally for the fact that we had gone out of our way to 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 start paying into OPEB, and then we were able to point to city of Stockton and say, "This is exactly what we were trying to avoid for you." Yeah. So. And then you guys had to had to um, do the Pepper deal too, right? With oh yeah, that else. got forced down everybody's throat. Nobody mm -hmm. asked for that. Nobody yeah. bargained for that. I mean, Brown was shrewd. He yeah. understood that you and I and Rick could not bargain for a member that hadn't been hired yet. Yeah. Right. So. And you know. Look, nobody wanted a lesser retirement benefit. You you didn't want that for your members. We didn't want that for our members. I talk a lot about the fact that I understand how two people working side by side doing the same job and getting different benefits is is frustrating, right? And Rick, you've probably, you know, I'm sure you've heard the comments over the years because you're you're fortunate to be in the old retirement formula, but he works in an office. The central LA. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about the demographics in yeah. central LA? Ever since I've been on the uh, Highway Patrol and, and part of the association and a director, I mean, it was John Hamm's uh, worst nightmare. He didn't want a two-tier system or three-tier system because then you have the, the divided briefing rooms. So back when I got on, we were all the same. When we got our three at 50, we were all the same. And then we started the second tier, third tier, and now you're, it creates a divided briefing room. Yeah. Um, you have the the haves, the haves not, and the even less nots, and it, it can cause a little bit of friction amongst the troops. Yeah, and Rick, you're in central L.A., which is basically every new office. Half <laughs> the new officers in the Highway Patrol go through central L.A. Yeah. to get trained. So Yeah, so, I mean, that's a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, I guess the majority of central Los Angeles are, and I, I don't like to use the word have-nots, but the majority of them are the have-nots. They have less. Have less. <laughs> have less. Yeah, have yeah. less, true. <laughs> So, I mean, I guess that's probably a better thing. They're all coming out of the academy. They're all working together. They're all at the same tier. Yeah. Um, might be a little bit more difficult for the guys in Northern California, the more senior offices where you have the majority of it is senior. Now you have the newer guys coming up that finally get the seniority to get to those offices. They're probably a lot more divided than we are down south. But nevertheless, it still causes somewhat of a friction. 
Yeah, I, I think what I think about, though, when I think of Pepper, as much as we all hated it, and it, again, it, 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 that was done with the stroke of a pen, not because unions agreed to it or said, yeah, sign me up, or sure, we'll take a, a cut to retirement, but because Brown was shrewd enough to understand you and I and Rick had nothing to say about what happened to an employee who was going to be hired a year from now. Yeah, We don't bargain for them. And he understood that. So he knew he could do what he wanted to. Um, and he did, as we all know. And we kind of live with the fallout of that as a union, thinking somehow we were complicit in that when the reality is we had nothing to do with it. You know, it, 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 it was a piece of legislation that got passed by a governor and a legislator legislature. And, and we didn't we had no bargaining rights in that situation because it wasn't being applied to the members we bargained for. But that said, I think one of the things we all probably both, um, you know, probably both of our groups suffer from is we have career employees who do the job of a firefighter for the, for Cal fire or a highway patrol officer for the CHP for their entire careers. And it's really easy to forget that if you don't even talk to your next door neighbors about the pension you have because 99% of the universe does not have any defined benefit pension plan whatsoever. So I think, you know, as much as we hated PEPRA, we also to some degree recognized that in that process, there was still a defined benefit plan being preserved for our future members. Um, and, I, and if you recall, Tim, when that all started, Brown wanted like a three-legged system with yep. a deferred comp and social security. And, yep. and no, nowhere in that conversation was the fact that, by the way, you've got a whole public safety sector that doesn't pay into social security. So what do you do for us? There was no conversation when he was talking about that three-legged stool about doing something extra for public safety to make up for the social security. And what we got left with was a feeling that there was going to be a two-legged stool for our members, yeah. right? Um, this very abysmal defined benefit pension and whatever you could squirrel away in your deferred comp plan. So, um, you know, obviously we know that that got changed over time and a defined benefit program was in fact preserved as a part of PEPRA. Um, but I think the perspective that our collective members sometimes struggle to understand is, you know, yeah, all their buddies have this, have a defined benefit plan, but most most of the world does not. I mean, yeah. the fact that you even still have a defined benefit retirement plan is pretty huge. Yeah. And, it, you know, you, you said two things there that, like, rang a bell. One is I, I, I try to tell our guys because, you know, when they're upset and they want us to attack, you know, they say, oh, well, let's get the, let's get the public involved. And it's like, well, the public <laughs> may not be on board because you have something they don't. And they may, you know, they, they – in their heads believe, well, I'm paying for you to have that. Why am I going to fight for you to get more? So that's the hardest part to explain to the younger generation that you don't want to be saying that or thinking they're going to protect you because you don't, they don't have that secured retirement. And so I, I appreciate when you say, and you have said that most of the world doesn't have what we have. No. And, and, and the other thing that you said, I think that we want to make clear is, it took the unions fighting to even keep, like you said, from it becoming even worse. And because of collective bargaining and the unions fighting, we were able to preserve that going forward, whether it's, you know, 2.5 at 55, 2.7 at 57, however your formulas are. 
we we were able to preserve that you still have a retirement. Yes. Yeah. And that was huge. I mean, because that wasn't plan A. Plan A for Brown was we'll give you this tiny little pension worth maybe 30% of your salary and the rest will be deferred comp and social security. And like I said, for our groups, never was there a conversation about doing more for firefighters and highway patrol officers because you don't pay into social security. We were just going to get left out in the cold on that. I believe that firmly. No, so do I. And and so so our our groups really came together to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So it's interesting because yeah, we weren't complicit in PEPRA, but at the same time, we definitely had dogs in the fight to make sure that PEPRA wasn't way worse than it turned out to be. Yeah, I guess that's how I would say. No, absolutely. (laughs) And when people say, you know, why do we have a union and what do we it's it's for maybe not always fighting. You know, we're all fighting to get increases and stuff like that, but they don't see the fight that it takes to keep something or protect something that today people want to take away. So so easily. Yeah. And, And they don't see that side of it. And it's hard to explain that to the individuals in the field because you can't feed them everything in the world that's going on up here in Sacramento. Right. Right. But that fight alone, people, I don't think realize how big of a fight that was for our two departments as a whole, you know, and it took up a lot of time and energy. And it was a fight that to me proved the worth of a union, because if a union or your bargaining unit wasn't there to do that, it'd be gone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, your members right now would be getting a 30% defined benefit retirement and whatever they could put into deferred comp. Yeah. That's that's what they'd have today if it weren't for what what your union in the past did and, and what other groups in the past did to to make sure that an important piece, the, the defined benefit plan, was preserved as much as possible. Yeah, it, it, explaining that stuff to, you know, this younger generation coming in, I call them, you know, because most of us, you know, started really on... But on the, on the on the upside of that, you know, if you have a guy for our department that comes in, I, I think you're 21, right? So to be an officer, yes. Yeah. You know, you can come in our department at 18. And, and if you go to 57 and you start at 18, you're going to have more than 30 years. And there is no cap. Now, granted, not everybody's going to hit that, but we're capped at 90. They can go to 100. They can go to whatever if they want to work the year. So... There is an upside to it if you come in young. If you come in late, then yeah, you're you're kind of you know screwed a little bit on on that formula. But yeah, yeah, it's it, you know it's it's um again I go back to it's a defined benefit pension plan, and ninety nine percent of the world does not have that, and and it's a really easy thing for our members to lose sight of because like you know I'm sure it's similar for you guys. You know our our members that their friends are fellow officers. There's a very tight bond, you know, that that I'll call it a brotherhood, even though I'm a woman, there's something to that, right? It's a, um, it's a fraternal bond. And so you kind of run in that circle of people who have the same thing you have. And it's really easy to lose your perspective about the fact that there is a huge swath of the population out there in the real world who do not have what you all have, you know, what, what your members and our members have. Yeah. I have to remind some of our guys, you know, cause like I said, I'm, I agree. Our guys are overworked. They, they should be getting more days off. They, they, they should have better work schedules and stuff like that. But at the same time, we have to look at what the public's perception is, especially if we want them to support us, right? And so I tell my guys, hey, when you're driving a $60,000 truck and pulling a $60,000 boat, 
and you got fire decals all over it. The general public doesn't know how many hours of overtime you may be working or how in depth debt you are. You know, they don't see that. They see you bragging that you're a firefighter, having a truck that they don't have and having a boat that they don't have. And yeah, you may not be making the money that we believe you should be making it. But if you want the public to support you, just be very careful of the perception you're painting to them. You know, and that goes with the retirement too. You don't want to go to your neighbor and say, oh yeah, I'm going to get a $6,000 retirement check when he's probably getting social security for 1500. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's, it, that's an educational piece. We're trying to educate our, our members on more, like help us help you in a way, you know, don't say this and then expect the general public yeah. to say, woe is me because yeah. they're not going to say that. Do you get that same uh, impression? Absolutely. Yes, yeah. we do. Yeah. yeah. Do you kind of tell that to some of your guys too, or? We do. Carrie said it early on. You don't want to sit on your, uh, you know, yeah. driveway bragging to your neighbor about what your pension is going to be in yeah. retirement. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's, there's, you're absolutely right about that. And I think my predecessor, John Hamm and Rick, you'll remember this. He used to call it the public employee island. You yeah. know, you, you can't necessarily turn to the public to come fight for you when that defined benefit plan is something most of them don't have. And they're, you know, the, the narrative has really become not how do I get that too or why don't I have that too. The narrative really is I don't have it and you shouldn't have it either. And so we call it the public employee island. And really now public safety is on an even smaller island yep. um, because of the type of benefits that our folks have. So, yeah, it is it is definitely a tough thing to, to educate your membership on, but it's it's a really you know, every once in a while you have to give that reality check. Go talk to your next door neighbor and find out what they're doing. You know, the other thing we do, Rick, why don't you talk just a little bit about our Western States meetings? Talk about that a little bit, if you would, because I this might be something that could be of interest to him and his members. Yeah, yeah so we, uh, if you want to compare yourself, you know, California to go as far east as you want to do, we, California Highway Patrol, we belong to the National Troopers Coalition, and within the National Troopers Coalition, we formed a smaller group called the Western States. So uh, long story short, anything west of uh, Colorado belongs to Western States. And we meet um, typically twice a year. We host a meeting here in San Diego, and then we'll, we'll meet somewhere else with the Western States. And it's, it's not embarrassing, but it's, um, it's very eye-opening when we talk. And what the, the groups do, it's the presidents and a couple uh, board members. Carrie likes to attend um, as our CEO, uh, frequently and our San Diego one always, but we'll sit there and we'll talk about who has what and what, who's negotiated for what and what agencies. Um, if they have negotiations. If they even have a very good point, if they even have negotiations. And, you know, the joke is what did the California Highway Patrol get? Left turn pay? You get a raise every time you make a left turn. That was kind of the joke. And mm. you, you sit back and you realize, wow, we have a good. We really have a good. And some of those conversations I wish we could have in a, you know, a stadium um, where we're on the pitcher's mound and that table and all of our members, all 14,000 members are in the stadium listening to the conversation that takes place at that small little table. Because I think that and only in, in this podcast, I think is going to be very important for your members. But if our members heard what these other agencies don't have compared to what we have, the conversations that we have at those tables with just the 12 Western States presidents and board members, it'd be an eye-opening jaw-dropper for our members to, to hear what they don't have compared to what we have. Yeah, so. 
I think one of the stories, I've told this story so many times, but I repeat it every time, but I won't even say the agency, but one of the agencies that we were meeting with, so these are all associations, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them actually have collective bargaining. A lot of them are in right to work states where basically it's, you know, you go to the governor and beg for a pay raise. And if you're lucky and they like you, you get it, right? That's kind of how it works in many other states outside of California. And I just have a very specific recollection of one group who probably makes a third of what our members make, maybe half. Um, they were really, really excited because the wives um, made cards and delivered mugs to the legislators. That So it was, it was the wives of all these officers, you know, kind of got together and wrote out thank you cards and, and gave a mug to legislators. And as a result, their members got a 50 cent per hour pay raise. And they were ecstatic. 50 they, cents an 50 hour. 50 cents per hour. They were thrilled to get a 50 cents per hour yep. pay raise. And I just kind of, <laughs> I just will never forget that moment. And you, we are very careful about what we say in that room. Honestly, yeah. we're very careful about what we say in that room because we're clearly probably the best compensated group out of all of them. And you're almost embarrassed, you know, to kind of talk out loud too much about, about the, an embarrassment of riches, right? That term. Um, and again, to your point, Tim, it doesn't mean that our members don't work really hard for that and they, that, that they don't deserve it. But this, that has, that was just always a reality check for me. And, and most of them have no retiree health care whatsoever. They get health benefits for as long as they work. And then that's the end. They have to figure out how to pay for it. Yeah, we, we go to uh, conferences with the International, and we hear the same thing. And, in fact, our last podcast, well, not our last one, but the one before that, we had a, a president of um, out in North Carolina come in and talk about their, their issues. And he, he would tell us, he goes, I always thought California was the street, streets of gold. It was like trick-or-treating. You just go in and say trick-or-treat, and they give you something because you guys have it all, you know. And he explained what they had to battle to get. And I, I described our retirement, and he was just like, yeah, don't don't say that again. Basically, you know, that's like, I wish we had that. And I, what I will find ironic is, and you guys will probably see it, though, is we did that broadcast, and and, and I, I, I lied to you not. A lot of our membership was, well, don't compare us to them. We're, you know, we're, it's like, it, 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 you know, you, you give them information, and, and it's those ones that just don't want to absorb it and understand it. So, but we, we, I try to do it via podcast, that same thing here, we hear it when we go to our conferences and stuff like that too, how lucky California has it and California streets of gold and every California firefighter has, you know, towing a $60,000 boat and that's how other people see California. It's like, yeah, but you know, you say that, well, you know, you, you, they, they don't work the hours we work, whatever. Okay. <laughs> we can go on for hours with that one, but <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I appreciate your guys' time, but before we wrap it up, I wanted to touch real quick on your, um, what are, one of the things that stirred this need for this podcast in my mind even more was your last, uh, what was advertised in the paper with your last contract, so to say. But can you just describe whether it was actual contract negotiations, were you negotiating back your pay cuts, and, and do you think what you got was... This, this huge, great thing that my members, how they read it in the paper was CHP got the world and I'm all, okay, well, not the way I read it, but 
you know, coming out of you, the, the lead negotiator and their president, <laughs> not Tim Edwards, the president of Cal Fire Local 2881, but well, California Highway Patrol themselves. Can you just explain a little bit of what occurred over the last month with your so-called negotiations? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I think the most important thing to understand, Tim, is that we were in the middle of a multi-year agreement, you know, so we negotiated an agreement in 2019, um, that was set to expire in 2023. So we're in the middle of a collective bargaining agreement when the world falls apart due to mm -hmm. COVID. Um, and we got dragged back to the bargaining table just like everybody else um, around PLP. Um, you know, so I don't, did you guys talk to your members about how PLP and, and there's a whole backstory there about why we even could get drug back to the bargaining table. Cause you know, I mean, a contract is a contract, right? In theory, you should be able to, you should be able to just say, look at our contract and that'll tell you how much you need to pay us. Yeah. But what happened back in the 2010 financial crisis was governor Schwarzenegger said, Hey, we're, I'm going to furlough employees. We're going to, you, you're going to sit at home for, you know, eight hours a week or eight hours a month, and I'm going to give you a 10% pay, pay cut. And um, state employee unions sued him. And the, the ultimate, um, the case that ultimately put us all in the situation we were in last year was the Supreme California Supreme Court, who issued a decision and said, when there's a financial crisis and the governor says there's a financial crisis and the legislature agrees with it, you can be forced into furlough or PLP. So before that, you know, that had never happened before. So this, so, so now fast forward to last year, this is the first financial crisis that's happened since 2008 when the California Supreme Court said it's legal to require employees to go into a PLP program if there's a financial crisis. So, you know, just an interesting factoid to me that it was unions who sued in order to avoid those pay cuts in 2010 and unions who ultimately lost that suit um, and got a decision from the California Supreme Court that made it legal to put a PLP program in place. So that I think I mentioned that just because I think it's good when it's you good talk you about yeah. always fighting the fight, you got to be strategic about when you fight that fight and you have to be able to assess what is at stake when you fight that fight. And I would say that, you know, the groups who did that were doing exactly what their members expected them to do. They won the battle and lost the war, really, is what that ultimately came down to. So we all got drugged back to the table. But for us, we got drugged back to the table in the middle of a multi-year agreement. Um, and so, you know, we had a what we called a limited reopener. So we were not opening up our entire collective bargaining agreement. We were just saying, let's look at PLP and what can we as a union kind of, they wanted PLP, right? Mm -hmm. And they wanted it through agreements. Yeah. Um, and so we, uh, we got an opportunity to leverage that for a couple of things. And one was a contract extension. We got a one-year contract extension last year as a result of, of our negotiations. But, um, you know, really last year's negotiations were mostly takeaways. Um, we got the contract extension. We did get a bump in our leave balance cap, but I think most groups got that. Um, but uh, what's been misconstrued in the papers is a lot of the stuff that they talked about as a part of this year's agreement was part of our four-year agreement that we had. It wasn't 
part of what was negotiated specifically this year when we went back to the table to undo PLP. Yeah. So I think that's where some of the confusion lies is that was some of the stuff that got brought up in the newspaper were things that were already a part of our collective bargaining agreement, not something we additionally secured through these year's negotiations. These negotiations were very limited. And trust us, mm-hmm. <laughs> Richard, Rick had calls for all kinds of stuff. Our members had great ideas for things that we should be negotiating as a part of these negotiations. And what we had to make really clear is this is a limited reopener. We're only dealing with the stuff that was in the, the side letter from last year. We're not opening up our entire agreement. Yeah. Because the second you do that, you make yourself vulnerable to takeaways. Um, so, yeah, we got our pay cuts restored. Um, the pay raise we got is a pay raise we would have gotten regardless of this year's negotiations because it was it's what's due under our parity statute. Um, I don't know if there were other specific provisions that I could kind no, of I, clarify. I, but No, I think you said it best because when I went back and I, I reviewed – all the ones that were in the paper, um, other than let's just say corrections, uh, everybody was just negotiating back what was lost last year. Yeah. And their increases were what were due to another contract. Yes. And the reason why we weren't in the paper is, as I explained to you, is that we knew we were going to be in eventually an open contract and we weren't going to shut the door on that. So we did, we agreed to the cuts for one year. And so yeah. we didn't have to go back and, and try to renegotiate that pay because it was automatically going to be restored. Um, but I, in mine, and, and, and I know you and your position has probably reviewed it, so I'll ask you. I didn't see anything other than corrections on any of the other bargaining units outside of the, like, I think... Um, is it scientists was open and maybe one more yeah. that are still open with us that got anything outside of that? No, no, no. And, and again, I think the newspapers were reporting provisions that were a part of existing collective bargaining agreements. So like SEIU, as an example, was due a pay raise last year. Not only did they go without that pay raise, they also got the cut that all of us got. So all they were getting was the pay raise that they were supposed to get last year. Yeah. Um, so most of those other provisions that got reported out were part of an existing collective bargaining agreement. So if your agreement's open, you're not, that's not going to be a part you're, you're just going to get back what you lost. Right. And I, I mentioned this to you. I think you guys made a really good strategic move by just saying, no, we're going to only agree to a one year deal because we, our full agreement is open next year. We're not going to bind ourselves to something over a course of two years and then be negotiating against ourselves a year from now when our contract opens up. That yeah. was a good strategic move on your part. And you didn't have to go back to the table to get those pay cuts mm. restored. We did. Yeah. We had to go back to the table in order to get that back because it was a two year deal. Yeah. So. Yeah. And if the paper wanted to, to say, if we did, it would say, Oh, Cal fire got a 10%. Well, no, we got the 7.5 and the 2.5. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all we got. We didn't get a 10%. We got what was owed last year and what they took away. Yeah. Um, but you said another thing that was very interesting is that you have to be very strategic on what, when you open up and not open up and, and, and looking at how the, the world and the economy and the atmosphere is. And I, I that's where we are right now. I think, unfortunately, we're we're opening up in and in not such a climate where it's friendly um, because there's a lot of money my members see going out the door, but, you know, it's one-time money, as they like to call it, and some other things. 
Um, so not getting into depth with our negotiations, but we have to, what you said is really real. We have to look at strategically by doing it or can we open ourselves up to what they want to come after and how do we do and protect that in this time of fear? And uh, that's the nuances that go on behind the scenes and you can't explain to people, right? <laughs> yeah. There's, there's definitely some technical back end to negotiations that it's difficult for the average member to understand for sure. Yeah. So I did see in this one, and correct me if I'm wrong, you actually ended up paying a little bit more into OPEP. Is that what I read or how I read it or did I read it incorrectly? Yeah. So we were, no, we didn't. It's, it's complicated, Tim. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Everything um, is, right? <laughs> it is. So we had gone without pay raises in the past in order to um, fund OPEB. So our employee contribution was a pay raise that never happened. Got it. Okay. And then that pay raise came. So then we had to pay. Right. Got it. So that's kind of how it worked. Um, so I don't think we have anything better than anybody else or anything worse than anybody else. We're doing exactly what everybody else is doing in the past. Our members were funding it through pay raises they never received, but now they're actually getting those pay raises and they're paying their share of the OPEB that's commensurate. So it's very similar to what other groups did in the past, which yeah. is that they, the state gave them pay raises to begin that contribution. So your members, if you're paying 4.4, is that what yeah. you said? That, that's 4.4% that your members probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. The it, reason yeah. they were given that 4.4% pay raise was so that they could turn around and hand it. A, as part as of our last contract, exactly, yeah, exactly. The overall raises in our last contract was based on covering the 4.4 yeah. that we were going to have to pay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I like the fact that you explained it that way because, yeah, ultimately what we see now is you're paying pretty equivalent to what every other bargaining unit is paying. But the one thing you said that our guys didn't understand is you were willing to give up pay raises to, to cover that cost up until then. Yep. Where, you know, we if we would have told our members don't take a pay raise, it's a, uh, you know, different mentality, different thought process, right? Um, yep. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to wrap this up because I know you guys are busy people too, and I really appreciate you guys taking the time to come um, explain because – as I, as I said before, we get a lot of comparisons and, and our guys interact in the field and at the stations and, you know, what the field tells each other and what's really going on in Sacramento is always, you know, two different stories as it, as it always ends. And our guys were hearing, it, and, you know, it's actually a benefit to you guys. They're, you know, most of the guys they're hearing from their officers is our guys are doing great. We're doing great. You know, they, they, and then they hear, oh, well, we're not doing great. So for you guys, you're just so you know, the, the guys in the field think you're doing great when they talk to our guys. So. That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was going to make a joke about that earlier because, yeah. you, you know, you were talking about how everybody's so happy. And, and again, Rick and I are both the same. We kind of focus on the the negative sometimes like yeah. the people we hear from who aren't happy. So it's, it's nice to hear that there's yeah. folks out there who feel like we're doing a good job, including your members, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they, you know, they, they want, they want us to have you at our table. <laughs> um, but you know, Rick and I are, we, we have a lot in common. We both fly up from Southern California, you know, as the yeah. presidents of this union, you know, you like to take that earlier flight. Yeah. I don't, but, <laughs> um, but we, we can meet up and do the same job for the membership. And so there's a lot of um, comparisons in our departments and in our unions that, you know, 
they should see. Well, and I will just make one last comment to both of you, which is, you know, for me, this is my professional job. It's what I'm paid to do. But for you guys, um, it's kind of more of a labor of love, right? Like <laughs> you, you have a day job in theory, and then you've got this job and you may have released time to come do this job. But, um, but at the end of the day, it's not a Monday through Friday eight to five job ever, you know, right. and Rick, I know, and Tim, you're probably in the same boat. The phone rings 24 seven, practically, yep. you know, you're lucky if you get to just set that phone as if you're awake, the phone's on. Yeah. Um, and if you're uh, asleep, I just, the phone is on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I just have a lot of respect for electeds who do this because it's not, it's not a members sometimes have a perception that it's sort of this glamorous thing. And, you know, you do, all you do is go to political fundraisers and hang out, you know, and it's, it's so much work. There's 90% of what yeah. you do, your membership never sees and never knows about. Um, so my hat's off to both of you for, for, for the fact that you choose to serve in this capacity. It's a, it's a big deal and it's a lot of work. Um, so. Yeah. Well, I'm sure I'm like Rick, you know, we, we had our voices and our issues and we wanted to move up and make a difference and try and, I'm sure Rick's a lot like me. I tell people, I'm not just, we're not just going to roll over because it affects our retirement. It, it, our families, our pay is all tied to everything we're fighting for. So for me, just to roll over is saying that I'm complacent to what I'm getting paid. And trust me, nobody's complacent, you know, to what it is. And so when our collective bargaining units get raises, then Rick and I get our raise, right? Or however it works. That's the only way we get it, right? And when benefits go up, then that helps us. So we're not sitting around thinking golf yeah, you tournaments have the same and horse in the game yeah. that every other exactly, member out there has exactly yeah, and same sure. with the bargaining members on the team you know that they yeah. are fighting for the exact same thing you know that their livelihoods are at stake too so none of our teams go to the table and say oh we're just going to do what they say and right. Yeah, right. Yeah. i doubt any of our teams does that no. <laughs> but um well, once again, I want to appreciate you guys for coming out and taking the time maybe we can do this again sometime down the road when in better times and when things are doing. And I, I like the fact that you brought up to me that we used to work closely together in the past. And I, I really like to start that back up and, and working cohesively and seeing what we can help each other with going forward. So um, with that, we're going to wrap it up and thank you for your time. Yep. Thank you, Tim, for having us. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. That does it for another episode of Going Direct with Cal Fire Local 2881. Thank you so much to our special guests from the California Association of Highway Patrolmen, Rick Lebeski, President, and Carrie Lane, the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Negotiator. Uh, make sure to hit that follow button so you stay up to date on the new episodes. If you have any questions you'd like Tim Edwards to answer on future episodes, please send us a message at calfirelocal2881.org. 